Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from a sunny Monday here in Boulder, Colorado. Our series, Podcasting from Home, continues this week. So again, if you hear babies crying, dogs barking, birds chirping, loud music blaring, maybe some loud raffy children's music in the background, uh, apologies. We are also adjusting to what it's like to work from home. Um, this week, we're talking all about the Tour of Flanders. Had this been a normal year, uh, this week would be the week before the Tour of Flanders. Tour of Flanders is my favorite bike race. Um, if you ever, ever get a chance to go check it out, I highly recommend it. Whenever friends or family would ask me about going and checking out the Tour de France, hey, what stages of the tour should we go watch? I would say, hey, skip the tour, go to Flanders, go check out, you know, Gent Webblegum, Tour of Flanders, Holy Week. Um, it's, it is, I can't begin to describe how much fun it is to be there for that race and how exciting it is to watch that race. So this week we're talking all about Flanders. We have gone back and watched three of our favorite recent editions of Tour of Flanders. Um, that is editions held on the new course format. And we're going to break down these editions, talk about what we learned from rewatching them, insights we got into the race from going back and watching these YouTube clips, and just why these editions are so uh, of interest to us. Um, yeah, so Tour Flanders centric episode of the Vilnius podcast. Hey, before we get started, I want to thank um, all of you who have been submitting emails to us um, after our episodes, especially after the Mid-South episode. I heard from a number of uh, listeners who emailed us at webletters at com about their perspective about the race, about the episode, about us being there. Um, I appreciate you all reaching out. Our email address is always open. Um, definitely send us a note if you have um, some thoughts on your mind. Um, okay, let's get to it. My guests today are Andrew Hood and James Start, two men who have covered many editions of the Tour of Flanders. Uh, before we get into it, guys, it's been a couple weeks since we caught up. Um, what are conditions like in your respective homes, uh, France and Spain? Hoodie, we'll start uh, with you. What is daily life like in northern Spain right now? Hi, Fred. Hi, everybody. Yeah, checking in here from northern Spain. Uh, Every night at 8 o'clock, everyone uh, goes out on their patios and uh, claps for about five minutes for all the first responders and healthcare workers and doctors inside all the hospitals really working on the front lines during uh, the coronavirus crisis. Uh, as probably most people are aware, you know, Spain's been hit pretty hard by this. Uh, you know, the death toll is pretty frightening when you look at some of the numbers. Uh, over the weekend, I think more than 2,500 people died over a three-day span over this past weekend. Uh, everyone's hoping that it's this top of this curve. Everyone's talking about uh, day 17, I think, today of the lockdown. And man, it's getting stir crazy, you know. Uh, luckily, knock wood, uh, no one I know directly has been affected by this. Uh, everyone being very respectful of the rules, and you know, here in Spain, it's quite serious, uh, both in terms of uh, the level of how bad the virus really has kind of gone into the older parts of the of the community here. I mean, most of the deaths, death, you know, the worst part of the death toll has been among. Older, the elderly, I think 80, 85 percent of the death have been among uh, people over 70. So, uh, you know, everyone here in Spain is really trying to be really follow the rule of the law. You know, here the lockdown is quite severe. We can't even go outside. I mean, the only 
time you can go outside is to uh, go to the grocery store or uh, go to the pharmacy or attend to some sort of emergency. So, I mean, I've been outside three days and 17 days, man. It's like going stir crazy, but it's pretty serious time. So um, these kind of chats obviously help. Just seeing your smiling face for you know puts a smile on my face. <laughs> puts a smile on my face too. Uh, readers or listeners should take note that uh, Andy Hood has a very good quarantine beard going. It looks like one of those hockey rally beards from the from the playoffs. Um, a little bit, you know, some gray in there, but uh, Hoodie, you're doing your part. I'm liking the beard. How about you, James? You are in Paris, and um, Paris has in France has its own set of rules and regulations. How would you describe what um, life is like for Parisians and, and life is like for you? Um, well, hey, Fred. Hey, Andy. Hey, everybody. Um, just for note, I have way too much gray to even attempt a beard, so that's not going to happen. Um, and and uh, shaving is sort of one way to sort of uh, try to maintain some sort of semblance of normality, I guess, you know, a daily routine. So that's that's part of it. Um, but really, uh, on a more serious note, I would say a very similar situation to Andy's. Um, we're in lockdown. Um, we, uh, people are out on the balconies as well or out on their windows at eight o'clock for 60 seconds, not five minutes every night applauding the, uh, healthcare workers and all the first responders. Um, but other than that, yeah, you're supposed to stay inside. I know people have been in, out once in two weeks. Um, you can go out for groceries, pharmacy, uh, up to about 20 minutes of exercise within a one kilometer radius of your home. And that's pretty much it. Um, so that takes out cycling. I could go for a run, but I don't really like to do that. So I've been putting my bike on the. Uh, fortunately, I have a balcony. I've been putting my bike on the balcony and and, and doing and doing the home trainer rides. I did, however, with my as a result of my uh, journalist card, press card, and a letter from the editor, you Fred, have the right to go to the Champs Elysees yesterday, um, which was pretty fascinating. You know, I've. I've so many times I've gone to the show on Sunday and stroll down it because it's a wonderful place and a wonderful way to spend a Sunday. And it was a very uh, special place yesterday. It was interesting being on the Champs Elysees with nobody. I mean, just almost nobody. Uh, and it was sort of contrasting it to the, the many times when I've been there watching the Tour de France come in and went to some of the spots where I shoot the riders and stuff and, and shot. Champs Elysees that was very, um, very, very um, well, just uh, empty. You know, in some ways it was kind of, you know, it was sort of attractive, but at the same time you can't share that with anybody because nobody else is allowed there. So that takes half the fun out of it. Um, but it's, you know, it was a reminder of just how much the city is in in lockdown, and, and we are very much. Um, maybe not quite as much as Spain, but it's pretty close i mean i've gone out to get food and that's about it yeah and where i am here in colorado we are like a lot of states other than new york city and perhaps seattle in which um you know it's all work from home orders our governor last week imposed a stay-at-home order so that um you know everyone is you know public places are closed restaurants are closed Uh, people are encouraged to still go outside and get some exercise and go ride a bicycle, but the ski areas are closed. People are being discouraged from going backcountry skiing. Um, you know, you can still get out and 
get some sunshine and some exercise, but very much being steered at home. Um, and there's no bike racing going on, which, you know, I think we all understand why that is. And it, it is what it is. And we're living with it and dealing with it. But it is a small, it is a, you know, small inconvenience that there's no Tour of Flanders this weekend. And that really bums me out because I love the Tour of Flanders. The Tour of Flanders, as I said, is my favorite race. It um, There's the history, there's the course, there's the climbs. I, I love how tactical uh, it is and how you know, year in, year out, you start to see, you see the race one in different ways. And one thing I really love about Flanders, and I was thinking about in the lead up to this podcast, is that, you know, we're only eight years now into the new Flanders course. Um, that, of course, is the course that takes advantage of these uh, climbs around Udenarda and has a, a circuit in which the riders go around and around and around before finishing in downtown Udenarda, you know, to the, for 2012, they launched this new circuit. They went away from the old course, which we saw, you know, the Mir de Gerardsbergen and, and um, the Bosberg as the final two climbs and into this new circuit. And so we're only eight years in. And a lot of times teams, you know, they'll spend long, they'll spend years sort of refining the tactics around a race and the, um, you know, how the uh, terrain leads to the way a race is how they they approach a race, and I feel like we're since we're only eight years in, the teams are the teams and the riders are still very much trying to figure out like what the best way is to win at Flanders. And so the three of us chose three different years to go back and rewatch. And what I like about it is all three years were won in different ways. So the years we're going to talk about this year: 2015, which is won by Alexander Kristoff; 2016, won by Peter Sagan; and 2019. Won by Alberto Bettiel. Now, James, you chose 2015, the year that Alexander Kristoff won. Um, what did What do you like about this edition? Um, and you know, going back and rewatching it, what are some of the things that stood out and the storylines around it? Well, I just thought it was uh, really a watershed year. It might not have been the most spectacular victory. You know, it wasn't like it wasn't like Saga. You know, with the World Championship stripes going off solo um that was really epic it wasn't like philippe Gilbert's amazing solo solo ride but it was i think in so many ways a watershed uh edition in ways like you referenced um we've been the, the the world of cycling's been trying to figure out this this new race course and what's the best way to race it even one team like like quick step or the Koenig now um has been winning it with different formats, um, and there's no set, nothing set in stone yet. But what we saw with a year um, where Kristoff won, attacking what almost 30k out uh, with Nikki Terpstra from from Quickstep, was that you could go from riders could go from far out, and we've had several editions where you know up until that point it was kind of coming down to the Quarmount and the Paderberg. The last, the last climb, it was just, you know, pressure was climbing and, and pressure was mounting and then be one rider, two riders, and acceleration on the quarter mount, and then a mano-a-mano on the Paderberg. Um, you know, that's what we often saw with, uh, say, Cancelara and Sagan. Uh, but all of a sudden, you had this situation where these two guys slip away. Um, having one of them on quick step obviously helps because, uh, the, you know, they have such, they've had such powers and numbers that they can shut the race down. But it's possible, and it has been reproduced at different on different races since then, to get away at very different points in the race. And all of a sudden, we've what we've seen in modern racing, uh, 
in Flanders was that there is there is no right way to get away. There's no key moment to get away. Every moment in the last 50, 60 key kilometers, it's possible to get away and stay away in Flanders. And that's what makes this new uh, course so interesting. So when you went back and watched it, especially in those last 50K or so, what were some of the moments that really stood out to you and the tactical decisions that were made that you really felt like contributed to the win? You know, just that, you know, first when you see those, when you see, when you see Terpstra uh, attack and, and, and Christoph is on his wheel, you say, okay, well, this is, you know, classic quick step move, putting Terpstra out there. Terpstra at the time was, you know, there's probably their third card. So, yeah, you send him out about 30K. He'll probably get caught but may offer support later on to Boonin or one of the other guys. Um, but on this day, and, and then, you, you know, you see – Christoph, go with him. Christoph's a sprinter, you know, known to be a sprinter. People hesitate. I think they didn't really expect him to go the distance. Um, and then they just – but then all of a sudden what happens is in the back, somebody's got to close that gap, and that gets tricky. And it, as the kilometers tick off, it gets harder and harder. And somebody either has to be really super strong to be able to get across on the promo. Or sacrifice themselves, and we didn't see that happening. That that, that situation we saw also very much uh, with Gilbert's victory, which was perhaps my f- actual favorite sentimental victory because I'm a big Gilbert fan, and I think what he showed there was just the absolute science of racing, his ability to analyze a race and 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 play other riders off of each other. He's so masterful at that. We saw it again last year in Roubaix. I thought that was just tremendous. But the reason I and I don't think anybody does it as well as him, really. But the reason I chose 15 was that this ride by Terpstra and, and Christoph was the first time we saw that play out um, in Flanders. And, and it's changed, really changed the dynamics of that monument. Something I also love about Flanders is the fact that, you know, you get to do the, you can do the sportive the day before. And so you get to actually ride the climbs yeah. and see the terrain and see what it's all about. And so Terpstra attacks... And um, Christoph goes after him. And it's on this slight rise. It's after the Kreuzberg. And the Kreuzberg is hard. I mean, it's steep and it's really painful. And the cobblestones at the top are really sucky. And a lot of times there is sort of this, there's this like regrouping that happens at the top of the Kreuzberg because people are tired. You're heading towards a feed zone. But the road then it's paved and it goes up this slight rise. It's a real power climb. And this was actually the climb that several years later Terpstra attacked on when he won the 2008 or 2018 edition. That was like his launch pad was this very stretch of road. And that's where these guys went. And it's sort of this innocuous stretch of road that um, it's, you know, it's not a cobbled climb. It's like the, the, the rise that comes after the cobbled climb that if you are ambitious enough and there's a let up in the action because people are trying to catch their breath, there can be a moment of hesitation. The other thing I remember about that year is that, boy, Sepp Van Mark, again, having problems like right before the, um, the, the big action. You know, I think that was where like he had a flat or his brake was rubbing or something and he kind of got caught out by the initial surge and had to catch up to the group and is like just about to catch on right when Terpstra goes. Yeah. Another thing about that year that I liked, 
I think we saw in 2015 really the first look at the kind of new quick step mindset in the post Bonin era. Uh, that's when we first really saw that dynamic where the team wasn't really just built around Bonin anymore. It was being built around all these different pillars that they could come into play. And that's why I think Quick Step really turned the page after Bonin retired because he was such a central focus to that team. And during the Northern Classics, when he f- finally did retire uh, a year or two after that, that's when we saw the scenarios where uh, the Terpstra goes up the road and you have Joubert, Stebar, and Lampert all holding back, waiting to come over the top, waiting to bridge across. And they've been able to play that card year in and year out. And that's why quick step is always, always a factor in all these races in the Northern Classics. Well, you, you actually, uh, you, it, it was very, it was very visible that year because you know Boonin was was starting to show the signs of aging. But you know that that tech, that mentality goes back with quick step before quick step before Domo, all the way back to Mapai, and that was Patrick Lefevre's mentality when he built the Mapai team around. Classics riders, and they all, you know, at the time it was Muziu who was their leader. But they, but they also won with Taffy. They also won with Ballerini, and the mentality was that they uh, would go into with one leader, but they had other cards to play, and um, that's, that's just the way they race. I, actually, doing a jumping ahead, uh, we're doing a a feature on Philippe Gilbert. I'm preparing for uh, for Roubaix. And he talks about last year's Roubaix when he was in the last break with Lampard. And actually, at one point, he got orders to let Lampard drift off the front. So that you know that shows shows how they how they always are playing so many cards at one point. Um, and as and and then and, and it works even better when they don't have an overwhelmingly dominant leader like Muziu or even more so Boonin, who was the, you know, obviously the greatest classics writer of co- of the cobbles in modern history. Something else that stands out about this year, that that was a very chiseled Kristoff. I mean, he was lean and mean. He's a guy, you know, he's a bigger guy. He's a guy that we've seen look, I wouldn't say doughy. I mean, they're all pro cyclists, so they're, they're very skinny and very cut. But he's a guy that like, you know, you've seen him be look bigger and smaller. And that year he was – I just remember like looking at his calf muscles and it's like, wow, that guy is so cut. He is jacked and really, really fit looking. And I think that showed itself on the Paderberg, which is, you know, Terpstra and Kristoff come into the Paderberg, which is just such a steep final climb. And you'd think that, you know, okay, Terpstra, this is his last opportunity to get rid of Kristoff. And, you know, Kristoff, he's this heavy sprinter. You know, Terpstra should be able to ride away from him. And it's actually Kristoff who looks better on the climb than Terpstra and I think leads the way up the Paderberg. So that was one of those moments where you're like, wow, you know, Kristoff was really, really tip-top shape that year. So yeah. chapeau to him. Well, the... Uh... That, that that may also be a little bit due to uh, kits that the Kadusha team had back in the day. Um, I have to say that they go down for me is some of the the worst, and I don't know that red <laughs> uh, shorts make anybody look thin. Um, but it was interesting because um, he was a big guy. I would call he is statuesque. I mean, he is massively muscular. Yeah. Um, and I remember after he won San Remo, I talked to him and I said, you know. All right, what's next? You know, uh, obviously you're you're good on the Kabul Classics, Roubaix, um, Flanders. I said, I said to him, I said probably Roubaix, huh? Because it's flatter, and you're you're you know the climbs are probably uh, a little more difficult for you in Flanders. He goes, actually no, it's quite the opposite. 
uh, Roubaix, the last 100 kilometers of Roubaix is like this long pursuit race, whereas the final climbs the, in Flanders, it's like each one of those climbs is a sprint for me. So it's like I'm doing like intensive sprint training. So it actually is better for me, uh, Flanders. And a year later, he won Flanders. Um, so I learned a lot with that conversation with him and, and continue. And he's been in, the, I think, the top five or six almost every time, every every race in the last four or five years. Interesting. Well, yeah, that was a great addition. 2015, Alexander Kristoff. I chose 2016. That was the year that Peter Sagan won. And, you know, look, the win itself gets overshadowed a bit by Sagan's celebrity. You know, he is a world champion at that time. He's the most popular man in cycling. He wins. It's this big dramatic victory. Um, and, and, you know, he was at the, at the, he's at the peak of his powers at that time. So I think that looking back, you can sort of remember that win as, oh, well, Sagan was just stronger than everybody. But that was not the case. Sagan won through this tactical masterclass that caught his rivals totally off guard. So storylines going into 2016 is you have the rise of Sagan. Um, you have Quick Step. Really with this, like Hoodie said, well-rounded support staff where you have Boonen, Terpstra, Stebar, and Steen Vandenberg, all of whom had been in finales at Flanders before. Um, then you had the big, big storyline, which is this is Fabian Cancellara's final year racing. So his last classics campaign. So, you know, could he win four Flanders? Could he win a fourth Roubaix? Um, you know, you had so you know, Kwiatkowski and Sky, they had a pretty good um, classics squad as well, maybe not at the same level as a Quick Step or as a Trek Segafredo um, or Tinkoff, but they were there right as as well. Um, what I really liked about this um, edition is like the 2015 edition. This was a uh, this was an edition that was won with a, a move that was made pretty far out. So it's you know 35k from the finish when Sagan makes his move, and so. The way the race went down, um, Greg Van Avermaet crashed out 100 kilometers to go, so no BMC. Um, his, his entire team went down, and he did not get back up. But you have this situation in which there's a break up the road. The group hits the uh, Quermont for the second time. Then they go on to the Koppenberg. Then they go on to um, oh, some of the other smaller bergs, the Tienberg. And there's a ton of aggression on the, the Tienberg in a front group gets out well a front group of favorites that has um vandenberg well, let's see here no stebar devolder gato sagan terpstra bonin bunch of guys from sky sep van mark and cancellara so all the big dogs are in this group and they're they're speeding towards the cruiseberg and you're thinking boy either something big's going to happen on the cruiseberg or everyone is just going to wait for the old quermont and like punch it then and First Kwiatkowski goes and Sagan goes with him. And this is on like a flat stretch of road in the run into the Kreuzberg. And it's sort of this innocuous stretch of road. And you're like, wait, these guys are going on the flats? And Cancellara has this opportunity to go. It's You can see it on the clip. You go back and watch it a million times. He has Stein DeVolder on the front. And DeVolder like reaches back to Cancellara like, hey, man, I will sling you up there. And Cancellara is like, no. And look, you know. Who knows? It's been lost to time. But my assumption was always that Cancellara thought this is too early to go out. 
I'm going to wait for the Quermont. That's when I want to go. That's maybe what my my tactics are telling me is wait for the Quermont. If these young idiots want to go out here with 33K to go with the Kreuzberg and the run into the Quermont and the Quermont left to go, I'm going to let them do it and burn themselves out. And that was that moment of hesitation made the raise because Sagan gets away with Kwiatkowski. Sepp van Marke goes up and joins them. Those three go up, catch the main break. And all of a sudden you have the scenario where Peter Sagan has an advantage going into the Quermont. And it's not huge. It's like 30 seconds. And that's that was it, though. Like, uh, Cancellara attacks on the Quermont, drops everybody. Sagan attacks on the Quermont, drops Kwiatkowski. Van Mark goes with him. And at the top of the Quermont, it's only 10 seconds. Like, Cancellara is right there. You're like, man, Cancellara 2010 bridges that gap and catches those guys. But Cancellara 2016, he's still 10 seconds short. And that was it. The 10 seconds turned into 16. They hit the Paderberg. Um Sagan makes his move at the Paderberg, drops Van Marke, who Cancellara makes his move on the Paderberg. But still, it's like still 10, 12 seconds at the top of the Paderberg. And that's it. Time trial to the finish. And Sagan takes his win. But if you trace, if you really look at Sagan's victory, it's because he had the stones to put himself out there with 33 Ks to go on the flat road. And uh, Cancellara didn't want to go with him. And both of them were super strong. You know, had they had they come into the Paderberg together, I don't know who wins. You may have seen a repeat of 2013 when Cancellara drops Sagan. But what I really liked about it was that it was it was just a very tactical battle. Um, you know, did we what did we learn from it? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it was just another scenario in which we learned that, like, if you are strong enough and willing to go from far out, you can you can catch people off guard and get a head start into some of these crucial climbs. Yeah, that, that was, um, that was one of the greatest additions of the Flanders, simply just the, the, the big party and the vibe and the feeling that was going on in that race, you know, all the hype going into Flanders, this builds during that week. I remember I was kind of late to the whole Flanders party because, you know, if the Velo News used to send me to the, to the Ardennes every year, so I never even went to uh, Flanders. I don't think that might have actually been my first year, 2016 or maybe 2015. So just to be be there on the ground and just feel that groundswell building during that whole week was so spectacular. And then to have, of course, Sagan, you know, win in the rainbow jersey and for him coming in and to win like that, being such a rock star that he is, you know, the Flanders fans just went absolutely crazy. That was the year he stood on the the roof of the car. He's like, and he's playing up to the crowds and had his big hairy mange there of hair. And uh, it was a Sagan at full splendor. And it really was the passing of the torch from the generation of the Conchalera Bonin generation to this new generation of, uh, you know, led by Sagan, whom, you know, still is only 30, and some people are talking about, you know, maybe his time is done. Well, he talks about that, you know. He's the one who's, who keeps putting that out there. How much longer can I continue? Um, but it's it's true that, you know, what I thought was so amazing uh, about that, that, that year was, you know, when you actually look, you know, on paper at the amount of monuments that he's won, he's only won two, I believe, right? Yeah. Uh, but he's done them with such style. And such, you know, that it's, you know, and I think both of them he did with the with the rainbow stripes on his shoulders. So, you know, and when he's on, he's on. I think he was going to be on this year. I'll tell you that because he has a has a tendency to sort of pop it every every pop it really big every other year. And he was close last year, even though he's a off 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 key. He was really close in Rube. Um, I think he would have probably really been on this year. 
Um, but that was, uh, was, it was just a spectacular, um, victory. And I think also, I agree with you, Andy, you know, I, I, uh, came to the new course late uh, the first several years, you know, there was a lot of criticism about the new course. I remember when it started, geez, in, uh, I can't even remember where it started the first time. St. Nicholas, I think is the first time I, and then we moved to Bruges for the start. Um, and and then we had the circuit on the end, which you know initially took uh, eliminated the mirror, which was you know uh, many people you know really didn't like. Um, but it's become very in the last five years, I'd say probably since Sagan's victory, we really see sort of the genius of this new course and the way that Flanders Classics has transformed uh, the Tour Flanders and its other races into something much bigger and much more international than they ever used to be. Yeah, and something that also stands out about that Sagan win is that a lot of times, you know, I think we do look at Sagan as, oh, he's so strong, you know, and, and we, we, when he did win, we were coming out of this Bonin and Cancellara phase in which, you know, the races were often won with like blunt force, which was just some some show of force that was so much stronger. You know, Cancellara was just so much stronger than everyone else on this section of road or Bonin was just so much stronger and rode away from everybody. And, and we even saw that in 2013, which was the showdown between Sagan and Cancellara on the Paderberg, where the young Sagan is able to follow Cancellara on the Quermont, and then they get to the Paderberg, and Cancellara just like, it's like he squeezes his head until it explodes. You know, he just dials it up on the Paderberg, and right at the top, puts in this burst of speed, and Sagan is just squashed, you know, squashed flat like a bug. But that's not the way that Sagan won it. He was tactical. He was smart. He was cagey. He goes with this early move that Cancellara probably could have gone with and decides not to. And and I think Cancellara is relying on the old way of winning, which is just bring a bigger hammer to the uh, to the fight. But, you know, when Sagan has a 30-second advantage on you because he was smart and took a chance, there's, there's nothing you can do. But at the end, he still won it. You know, he won solo on the Paderberg. Yep. Uh, just, you know, and he put the squeeze down on Van Mark that year. Uh, so it still came down to, to the Paderberg, which is, you know, it's an, the Paderberg is an amazing climb. I once rode it with Robbie McEwen and years ago. And that's it was only then where I really understood it because everything until then was really about uh, the Quaramount. And now this is a time back in the day when, when these climbs came much earlier in the race as well. But you had this long drive up the old Quaramount. And where it's hardest is not the steepest part in the beginning, but it's after they come through the little village and that long false flat into the wind uh, with lots of sidewinds. And then they come out on the main road. They go down and up, and then they drop down, and they hit the Paderberg again. And what I understood then was what makes the Paderberg so hard is that there is very little time to recover after the Quaramount. And the genius of this new course was that repetition of doing it two and three times. And so by the time they hit – that last Quermount Paderberg thing, it, it, it's lethal. Yeah, Paderberg sucks. It's hard. <laughs> it's, I've, I've suffered on that thing. So hard. I've suffered on that thing without racing up the Ode Quermont. Uh, so, Hoodie, you chose 2019 this past year. We were both there. That was the year in which Alberto Betiol won. Uh, what can you tell me about rewatching it? <laughs> Yeah, I chose last year for, or in fact, it kind of dovetails a lot of the, what we've just been talking about, kind of into that race last year. I thought kind of brought together some of these themes that, uh, you know, it, that the race, the Flanders and just the uh, Northern Classics in general were no longer dominated by 
one or two big stars or one or two big teams. Uh, I think last year really reflected how deep the Northern Classics uh, peloton is right now in contemporary cycling and how committed all the top world tour teams are to building out a really strong classics program. Uh, just looking at the top 10, top 11 last year, the, the, no team had more than one rider in the top 10 last year. So it was a, a wide representation across the peloton. Uh, and I thought last year also kind of brought together this kind of uh, new generation of classic stars to the fore. Uh, mainly for me, uh, Matthew Vanderpool, just what he did last year in the spring classics, you know, I was there for most of his run there last year in the Northern classics, just absolutely spectacular. And, uh, you know, he didn't win. Of course, remember last year he, he punctured right before the final double of the Cormat and Paderberg. Remember he kind of bunny hopped that curve and punctured and crashed. You know, everyone thought his race was done and for him to chase back, and to actually finish fourth just off the podium just really, for me, just really revealed the depth and quality of, of uh, Vanderpool. I mean, one of the best quotes of the year last year was from our man there, Heinrich Hausler, who said, Vanderpool's so good, he pisses diamonds and shits gold. You know, that's, that's, that's one for the ages. And that kind of just summed up, I thought, last year. We saw so many new young riders really step up last year. Uh, Osgren was second. You know, of course, he's a he's a big name that's going to be uh, keep winning races for years. V Vanderpool was there. Niels Pollitt was fifth, and he was on the podium at Rogue Bay the next weekend. Uh, Nason, even Valverde, Greg Van Evermatt, and Sagan were in the top 11. So it's kind of like this transitional between the old guard and the new guard, this kind of pushing into this new peloton that's deeper with a much broader representation across the across the world tour. Um, so all the storylines kind of just weave together, I thought, to make a really great addition last year of Flanders. I mean, kind of recapping the race briefly, there was the kind of the break went away. Uh, Asgrim was actually in that early break. Uh, Van Barl was out there with uh, Vandenberg, the big man. I love Vandenberg. He's he's an old uh, old Flanderan, old horse. He was out in the break early last year. Uh, that group kind of came back together. The Quisberg, uh, you know, really is where the race gets hard, and that's where it happened last year. And then uh, it really just went off uh, on the Quermont. There was a selection there over the Quisberg going into the Quermont. Big selection. There was kind of that it split up. That that group was off the front still. Big selection in the back. I think there was like 15, 20 guys. And then uh, Betty Dahl, you know, who had never won a race in his entire life, just is that perfectly timed, impeccably timed solo flyer, you know, kind of the middle of the Quermont and just goes. And it was one of those situations where maybe a few riders were out of position. And that's where Vanderpool was chasing back on. So he was not positioned to go after him. I remember uh, uh, Van Avermaet saying he was kind of got blocked in uh, lower on the Quermont, couldn't really chase when Betty all went. And then it was one of those situations where everyone kind of started looking at each other. And at that point, there weren't a lot of teammates to help the chase. So that's kind of why I thought last year's edition really kind of uh, kind of brought together a lot of these different kind of new tendencies in the, uh, in the uh, Northern Classics racing we're seeing right now. Yeah, when, whenever you get to the point where there's no teammates left to pull, for, for their leader, the racing really gets interesting. And that certainly happened uh, last year. Um, it happened like also the year Gilbert won. Just, you know, you, you get it down, it becomes this mano a mano, and all of a sudden 20 seconds is like two minutes because somebody's got to make that effort to close the gap, and they're sacrificing their own chances by doing it. And it gets, it gets you know, really interesting. And Betiol was, you know, okay, he may be uh, 
benefited a little bit from being unknown or lesser known, you know. I think uh, he was teammates with Van Avermaet in the past, and Van Avermaet, you know, who doesn't really, is not, a, never criticizes another rider, says, you know, to be honest, uh, he never showed that kind of form when he was uh, my teammate. Uh, but you talked to Van Mark. I talked to Van Mark uh, this year at uh, Tour de Provence, I think. Um, you know, and EF ha- has put together one heck of a good classics team. And they showed it, really showed it there last year. Uh, Flanders. And Van Mark himself went off in the early break on the Cop. Poppenberg, I believe, huh? Mm-hmm. Or you know, and and he was, we thought their leader. What's he doing going off so early, right? But he was, he, he was, uh, he was a little under form, and, and so he was putting his, you know, he he decided to throw his eggs into the, you know, to work for for Betiol. And they were already, when you look back on it, they were working for Betiol that day very early on. Although not too many people really knew who he was at that level, but they knew who he was. Van Mark said, hey. You know, I remember the Tour de France when Rigoberto uh, Iran got second. Betiol was like the last team rider able to to, to pace pace Betiol on the climbs when there's maybe only 15 guys, guys like Chris Froome still in the front pack. So he's you know they they understood just how strong he was and he you know he had his head on right and the whole team now and they've got one heck of a good classics team um, and so I think the the mood there is 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 such that. Uh, you know, they're they're yet one, like you said, Andy. Uh, one of you know, it used to be sort of quick step in the rest of the world, but now there's a lot of teams that can that can are going into these races with big confidence. It's really a shame. Uh, it's really a shame that that um, we were deprived of this year's classics because it's always such an, an amazing time. And and based on last year, I think it was going to be really just tremendous, uh, a tremendous classic season. You know, could Vanderpool? you know, uh, duplicate what he did last year or was, you know, was it going to be harder now that everybody's looking at him and, and Betuel and all these young faces, uh, um, Oliver Nyson, who's been knocking on the door for, for a couple of years now, you know, it was going to, it was going to be a great one. It might still be sometime this fall, who knows, but it's going to be a very different classic season. That's for sure. Yeah. A couple of things stand out to me about last year. I mean, Hody, you and I were there. I think we were watching the final kilometer on one of those TVs set up in the main square there at Udenarda. And then I remember watching the finale on the EF education bus, but, um, you know, EF education previously Cannondale, like, They've had strong classics teams in the past, not this strong, but they've always sort of tried weird stuff with trying to set Van, set, set Van Mark up, you know, sending guys off early. I remember they used to always have like Dylan Van Barla go really early in sort of not the earliest break, but sort of the second break. And then uh, Langeveld would do that as well. And I feel like what I remember from last year is that they all stayed together and it was Van Marka, like you said, James, who went off sort of Patter or uh, Koppenberg, Kreuzberg area and got into this breakaway, which allowed Betiel and Langeveld to stay in the group. If if I'm getting the names wrong, I'm sorry. It's been a while since I, I watched this. But I just know that Betiel was able to stay in the main group. And then once Betiel did go, they had Van Marka and Langeveld in the main group who were just getting towed along. So it was one of these situations where you're like, wow, you know, EF Pro Cycling – has the numerical advantage in this situation. And it's just not something we've seen in the past because usually there's like a crash or a mechanical or, you know, they have the strength, but like Van Marka 
you know, has a flat tire or something. Um, so I'll always remember that. And then I'm with you. I, I, I thought they were going to chase him back. You know, Betiel put in that great attack on the Quermont and it was, it was huge. I mean, it was 19 seconds or something like that by the top, but still I looked around and I was like, they're going to, they're going to bring this guy back. Sagan, Van Avermaet, Vanderpool, Wout Van Aert. Um, that's a ton of firepower. And they just, I think everyone was really, really tired. Yeah. No, it was the amount, the amount of, you know, all those names are, we're looking forward to are, you know, Pedersen, who was second there, what, two years ago, and he's the world champion now, showed really good form pairing. I mean, the, the, the number of potential new stories that were going to be written this year is, 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 was, was really uh, exciting. So looking at how yeah. the classics um, stars had been riding in the lead up to when racing stopped and how some of these teams had been riding. I know it, that feels like it was a million years ago. Um, how do you guys think the 2020 Flanders would have played out? Who would have won and which teams do you think would have been particularly strong and dynamic at this year's race? Go yeah. for it, James. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I think, you know, I think EF was going to be there. Obviously quick step, uh, is always there, except, you know, they don't, they didn't have a big name rider this year. They had a couple of riders that were going to, you know, move up and they've always managed to move those riders up. Guys, you know, Stibar showed good form winning stage in, uh, in Argentina. Uh, Lampard is always strong. He was strong in, uh, in news club, but they didn't have a big name to focalize the team. Um, Vanderpool, you know, only just started racing, it seemed like. So it was, it's, you know, I, there's no reason to believe he wasn't going to be there. But, I, you know, I think Sagan was still, I think still, Sagan still has at least one more big monument in him. Um, and I think he would have been, he was been riding really strong. He's just coming off an altitude camp. He doesn't need to win a lot anymore. The only races that motivate him are these big ones. So I think that he was going to be very hard to beat. Um it's 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 hard for me to come up with a clear cut scenario. I I I felt very strongly that Gilbert would have won San Remo. I had that scenario all written out in my head, um, but this one was going to be tougher. Yeah, the first real glimpse we got of just where people were on form, you know, was the opening weekend in uh, the opening weekend uh, at had uh, Newsblatt and uh, Kern Brussel Kern. And Steuben was there, very strong, you know, a huge win for him. And then uh, Osgren won Kern, Russell, Kern. Uh, uh, you know, both of those guys were just absolutely flying. I mean, Steuben, you know, here's a guy who's been banging around, uh, you know, the classics. He's been, you know, he's a big guy, so he's never going to really win. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be Flanders or Robet for that guy. And it just seemed like. He was really flying on good form, and another guy was going really well in the early season with Nizzolo. Kind of hit, you know, he had a lot of tough injuries, but he had a couple of impressive early season wins. And then, you know, we just didn't really get a real good look at guys like Joubert. You know, they were kind of, you know, because they're building their peak toward, uh, you know, coming into, uh, you know, really later in the spring season. And Kristoff again this year was looking very good. I don't think he won before a racing stop, but he, I think he had a handful of top top fives, and he was looking quite good. You know who else was looking really good was um, Team Sunweb. You know, James, you were there at Perry Nice, and I was so impressed with um, Tees Benut and Michael yep. Matthews and the way they were riding at that race. Um, I was also really impressed with Ivan Garcia Cortina. 
on Bahrain McLaren. I don't know if he had the necessarily the strongest team to be able to win Flanders, but like he was he won a stage and I think he was like second or third at another stage and was always up there in those crosswind sections. So just like based on what happened at Perry Nice, I looked at some of those guys. Soren Crow Anderson, another guy who was riding really well. So I, I think that we could have seen a pretty dynamic uh classic season. Well one of the one of the teams that impressed me the most uh at, at Perry excuse me, Perry Nice, not Perry Bay. In terms of a race like Flanders was Trek. Uh, that stage two was some of the hardest crosswinds I've ever uh, worked in. It was it was really hard. That race just broke apart and broke apart and broke apart. And Trek was just driving it at the front. I mean, Pedersen with the uh, with the world champion jersey on, just driving it for for uh, Steven and. You know, I they didn't they came up short with the win, but they were they were really there as a powerhouse team. Uh, EF also just powerhouse team uh, in 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 this, in situations that have a direct link to races like Flanders. Well, it could have been a situation in which this year was the beginning of a change of a guard, a uh, change of the guard. You know, uh, with Quick Step. And Oscarine coming up with Trek Segafredo really finding Bob their Jungles. horses. Bob Jungles. Um, and then, you know, guys like Garcia Cortina, Sunweb, and EF all looking strong. We will never know what the 2020 Tour of Flanders, the springtime Tour of Flanders, would have happened. But um, here's hoping that we get to see some fall action going. Well, guys, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on this past uh, edition of Flanders. I think let's do that with Roubaix next week. This was fun. I uh, I actually gained a lot of insight into this. Uh, so for Andrew Hood and James Start, um, thank you for tuning into the Villainies podcast. We will see you all next week. Mm-hmm.